Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder, you know, a founder that has seen both sides of the table He's been now running his company for a while, and we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, product market fit, the finding, you know, like the, the culture in the company, you know, that you want to go after, getting the best executives to join you, you know, in the journey and everything that you can think of. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Asab Resnick. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. All right. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So born in Israel. Obviously, I'm sure you don't remember much because you were four when you came here to the U.S., but give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life growing up was great. You know, uh, we moved from Israel to Silicon Valley uh, when I was four. And then, you know, my father worked in tech. All our family friends were tech. And my father really wanted me to get into tech. You know, he told me when I was about college age, hey, you better go study computer science and electrical engineering or you'll be homeless. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted nothing to do with tech at the time. I, I studied business and history, you know, almost out of spite. Uh, but, you know, overall, it was a great childhood. And why, why, why did you have that rebel in you? Why you, didn't you want to do the uh, computer science? You know, I grew up, you, you know, you grow up in a certain environment and you either say, hey, I want to do exactly that or I want to do I want to get out of that. You know, it's just a kid that's either like you adapt or you rebel. And I guess I rebelled. Uh, but, you know, I graduated college, graduated Berkeley in the late 90s, right as the dot com era was really coming into its own. You know, I was in the Bay Area and all my friends were, you know, kind of making money hand over fist. Uh, and coming out of college and getting these great engineering jobs and getting these great marketing or business, you know, business jobs in tech. And I kind of said, yeah, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so I did. And what was it like, by the way, to uh, go through the dot com, you know, uh, bust and uh, and be able to experience all that craziness? And I, I, I guess, you know, like being able to experience cycles, too. How was that for you? It was, you know, it was eye-opening, uh, but, you know, you really got to consider who are you when you go through these experiences. So I was young, 20-something, bachelor, without a care in the world. And so it was quite a thrill, you know, from the very highs and crazy, you know, valuations and flying over the world and crazy parties and all that. And then it all came crashing down and I was okay with it. Uh, but if I was 30 something, 40 something with, you know, three kids and a mortgage, it would have been quite different. Now, in your case, you ended up uh, doing tech and finance. You know, you were in, in a firm like Moody's and then, you know, you ended up transitioning to venture capital. So that's quite a really interesting transition. No? So how, how did that transition come about? Yeah. You know, in my 20s, I started off, like I said, working in, in tech and optical networking. Um, and then when the tech bubble blew up, it was kind of a nuclear winter in the West Coast. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go travel for a year. So I went to go travel in South America and in India, just bought a motorcycle for a year and traveled around India and, and Central America, South America, 
came back and, you know, tech was still pretty in the nuclear winter. So I moved to to New York, uh, worked in Moody's investor services, kind of an investment banker and an investment analyst for a while. Really wanted to get back into tech. Uh, uh, I think this was already 2005. Things were starting to emerge again. Uh, and my choices, you know, living in New York were, hey, I can move back to California. Uh, but I still had that kind of wander lust. I was still young. I wanted to experience new cultures, travel. So I said, let me move to Israel for six months and see how it goes. Uh, and very quickly, with moving to Israel, you know, serendipity put me in touch with some folks who had just started off the, the office uh, for Sequoia uh, and joined them. Uh, you know, it was really just at the right place at the right time. Looking back, I realized what a, you know, incredibly lucky moment that was for me and, and what a fateful moment that was for me. Uh, because my time at Sequoia, the six years I was there were, you know, so incredibly formative for, you know, who I am both professionally and who I am, you know, both personally. I mean, no kidding. Sequoia, one of the best venture capital firms out there. I mean, really entering venture capital is very difficult. How were you able to really enter the venture capital world, especially in, in one of the best ones, you know, in one of the best firms, you know, that one could dream of? Uh, and uh, how was that like? How how were you able to to do that? It was incredible. It was incredible. You know, how do you do it? You know, you just swim as hard as you can, <laughs> and, and you know, you focus and you work hard, and and you just you swim hard because you're swimming with some very very talented people. And you know, I think for me, the most the people I got the most from were actually the entrepreneurs. Because you're dealing with these folks, you know, usually young folks with crazy idea and all the cards stacked against them. And they're changing the world. And you see these folks just, you know, defy the odds and just out of will ideas into existence and bring smart engineers and smart executives and literally will an idea into existence. And some of those, you know, entrepreneurs and, and startups went on to incredible success. Some of them did not. Uh, but they all had the vision and the courage and the conviction. That was, you know, frankly, very infectious. For me, after five years of working with such people, I said to myself, you know, I don't think these people are you know, necessarily smarter than I am. They're just a hell of a lot more courageous and convicted and you know that's what really turned on my hunger and we'll talk and about say, that, you know, that that transition too but one of the things that comes to mind is i mean obviously now you know a founder because this kind of like opened you the eyes to hey you know i i could do it too right and and you went at it and you did it on your own but before yeah. getting there i guess what were some because six years at sequoia you know gives you know for a lot of access, a lot of experiences, a lot of entrepreneurs that you were able to meet, what were you able to find uh, as a pattern on the founders that ended up doing something great and that were able to execute versus perhaps the ones that failed along the way? 
You know, there's a lot of things and there's no one secret formula because there's lots of different kinds of successful entrepreneurs that have very different personalities. Uh, I think some of the things that you have in common is, is one, you just have to have incredible endurance. Uh, as cliche as that sounds, like it's really, really hard. There's a lot of ups and downs and you're going to get, you know, 90 no's for every one yes. From customers, from investors, from potential employees, and you've just got to keep going. You've got to believe. And you're going to have times where you're crushing it. And then you're going to have times when, you know, you're hitting a wall. And those times may be on the path to product market fit, on the path to your first $10 million in revenue, on the path of, okay, how do I go from 10 to $50 million in revenue? And you're going to have bad quarters. You may have bad years. And you may have executives who lose faith. You may have, you know, investors who don't believe. And, you know, you're going to have a really tough time raising your Series B or Series C or Series D, and you've got to keep pushing. And, you know, there's plenty of reasons to quit. Uh, well, but the entrepreneurs who make it are the ones who just keep going. You got your reason in 2012. So walk us through what was your reason to quit or to give your notice at Sequoia. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and how was that transition all the way to bringing Big Panda to life? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, the reason I did it, I, you know, I alluded to it before, was I just was, you know, had so much kind of awe and respect for these entrepreneurs that willed ideas into existence. Um, and I had an idea that I was very passionate about. And I said, you know, I, I want to go on that journey. I want to see if I have what it takes. And I want to go, you know, build something. Uh, and so that was the beginning and the journey. Wow. The journey was, uh, amazing and really, really hard. You know, the first year me and my co-founder had started Big Panda in a very different direction than where we are today. Today we do AI ops. So we use AI to automate IT operations, help large enterprises keep their digital services running. When we first started the company and when we took the first seed funding, it was in a radically different direction. It was around how do we take social data and use that, you know, do use machine learning and data science to drive smart advertising. So we recruited a bunch of data scientists, ran for a year and really hit a, hit a wall, realized this was not, this was, this direction wasn't going to work. And that was really hard. And that was really scary and kind of a look in the mirror moment. I said, okay, well, what do I do? Do I give money back to my investors? Do I shut down the company and go get a nine to five job or do I, do I keep going? We decided to keep going. And, you know, one of the pains that we had when we were doing advertising is, is when you have to build web scale infrastructure, it's very large scale, low latency. We had, you, you know, the cloud was young at the time. And so we'd used a bunch of different cloud and SaaS and open source services to stitch together a tech stack. And when we had problems, took us forever to figure out which of these silos is their problem. So we ended up hacking together some software to help us kind of find and fix problems faster. And when it came time, when we hit a wall with the original business, we said, hey, here's a really interesting problem that we solve for ourselves. And maybe other people have that problem as they kind of move to the cloud and to SaaS. And, and it turns out they did. 
Uh, and so that was really the genesis of where we are. Um, spent the next two years building the product. Uh, when it came time to move to, to, to launch the product, I moved my family to the United States. I had two young kids and one on the way. Moved my family. Uh, and you know, two months before we were about to launch the product, we got an acquisition offer from a large uh, enterprise in our space. And, you know, it would have been life-changing money. And we had two young kids and one on the way. And my wife said, like, sell this company, please. Help me raise the kids. Um, and we said no. And how did that happen? How did that acquisition come knocking? I mean, was that just like super random, you know, out of nowhere? Was it like someone that you guys were engaging with? And I mean, how did that? It kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, right as we were starting to get ready to, to launch our offering, we started doing marketing. We came out of stealth. We started doing thought leadership to try to, you know, cre uh, create the environment where our launch would, would be successful. And, you know, the enterprise, the, the strategic area heard about it, invited us to talk and said, yeah, well, this is really interesting innovation. Uh, we'd like you to do it here. Um, And we said no. What was that thought process to getting to know? You know, I want to say, I'd like to say that it was analytical, but it was more emotional. You know, the analytical part of it is, well, you know, if we do it ourselves and we take this to be a $100 million company, $200 million company, you know, can we do it? better ourselves will the economics be better for our for me and our investors and our employees versus can we go to a large company use all their corporate resources and, and do it there but that's not really how i thought about it how i really thought about it was i want to build something amazing i want i have a vision i want to prove to myself that i can get to a hundred million dollars that can build a meaningful company. Uh, and I just wasn't ready to sell. And so we said no. And we were very macho. We were banging our chest and said, you know, we're going to change the world and we're not going to sell out. And then two months later, we launched the product and crickets in the market. You know, crickets in the market for a year and a half afterwards. Nobody was interested in what we were selling. And that was a very difficult time. You know, there were times I'd come home and I'd say to my wife, like, what was I thinking? Why didn't I sell this company? Uh, and, you know, it took us two years to realize that we were in the right place at the wrong time. You know, 2015, when this happened, Cloud was still young. And enterprises hadn't fully adopted cloud. They were still experimenting. And we were coming to enterprises and saying, hey, we have an AI platform that's going to help you operate your business in the cloud better. And we heard, well, we're still experimenting with cloud. And so it was really a year and a half or two years wandering in the desert. And only in around 2015, 2017, 
did the market, you know, hit an inflection point where enterprises started saying, okay, we're going to stop experimenting with the cloud and we're going to go all in. That's when our business started taking off. But, you know, those two years of wandering the desert, you don't know personally, you know, is it I am in the wrong, right place at the wrong time? Or am I just a loser? <laughs> well, what do you think? What do you think kept you guys going? Because two years is a long time in the startup world. Yeah, you know, it's what I was, you know, talking to you before about what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? And part of it is just thick skin and persistence. And I just had a belief that, you know, the cloud is so complex with so much machine data that human beings just won't be able to process all this without AI, without machine learning. It just didn't make sense to me how there could be any other alternative. And so just sheer stubbornness. Uh, and, and, you know, I wasn't willing to fail. I just wasn't willing to call it quits. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So, Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. At what point in 2017, do you guys realize after two years of being the desert of, I think we're going to make it. I think, I think, I think yeah. we're into something here. Yeah. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. You know, I remember in Q1 of 2017, uh, our first big enterprise customer came and said, okay, we're going to standardize on you. This is one of the biggest semiconductor chip manufacturers in the world. And, um, that was a challenge because this is a you know Fortune 50 company coming and saying, okay, we're going to use you to drive all of our operations. And then in Q2, another big enterprise came. In Q3, another big enterprise came. And at that point, we said, okay, looks like the dominoes are starting to fall. You know, that was also the year where we we got to product market fit. And product market fit was not just the market pain needs to be ready. Also, you need to know who you're selling to. You know, up until then, we didn't really know, are we selling to large enterprises 
Are we selling to Silicon Valley startups? Are we selling to midsize? And only after, I'd say 2017, when we started to have, you know, three or four large enterprise come, did we say, okay, you know, we've got about 20 customers at this point. We've got a bunch of customers that are paying us $5,000, $10,000 under the Silicon Valley startups. And we've got customers over here that are paying us hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. Well, I like this cohort a lot better. They got a lot more money. And what does this cohort have in common? Well, they have in common that they're large enterprises. And the things they need are very different than what a small you know, SMB needs. You know, they, they both need a core AI engine in our case. But if you're going to sell a large enterprise, you have to have enterprise scalability and security. You have to have an enterprise sales force. You have to have enterprise customer success. It's... You know, it's not just the engine, it's the car you're building around the engine and the car dealership to go sell those cars. And that looks very, very specific for enterprise. Uh, so I'd say, you know, towards the end of 2017 is when we said, hey, I think we're going to make it. I think there's something here. Plus, you know, a sharpening of that product market fit. But that was a good four-year journey to that. That was incredibly hard. And obviously, the rest is history, you know? So yeah. for the company now, for Big Panda, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, I think we've raised around $330 million. And obviously, yeah. you, had the, um, you had the investor, you know, had, you had been, you know, at Sequoia before. You knew yeah. the environment of, of being on the other side. And, and also, you know, like uh, the, 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 the finding that alignment, really understanding and getting people you know, that we're going to be in it for the right reasons, no? So how did you guys go about to getting the right investors for the right, you know, with the right agenda, no, to, to come yeah, forward with you guys? That's a great question. Look, investors for me is, you really got to think about it like a marriage. You know, you can't just pick anyone who's willing to give you money. You know, especially if these people are going to be sitting on your board of directors You've got to understand that this is a marriage and getting divorced is, is not an option. And so you really got to be thoughtful about who you work with. And, you know, that's a combination of what is the right firm and, you know, what do they bring to the table in terms of their ability? To, you know, do they have a network? Can you tap into that network? Do they have brand recognition? Is that going to help? The brand recognition going to help you recruit great executives? Uh, is it going to help you raise money in the future because people want to be associated with that investor? Things like that. But just as important, I think even more important is who is the partner? You know, is this someone that I have chemistry with? Is this someone that is going to let me be the CEO and understand what does it mean to be an investor versus uh, a CEO? And so someone that's going to come and say, hey, I have a lot of pattern recognition and I can give you a lot of great advice, but I also recognize that I'm not in the trenches of your business. I don't have all the contacts and I trust you to drive. You know, you want someone that is going to be cool headed. You know, when, when things are going great and everything is up and to the right, well, that's easy to be on board. But when you hit bumps in the road and every company does, you know, are these investors that are going to keep their head on, you know, and be cool and understand the long term and not say, hey, you've got to do a radical pivot 
every time you hit a road bump. Um, and so you really want to be thoughtful about, you know, who you pick and you want to be, you know, hopefully people that you can form a relationship of trust with and, and be able to come to them with not just, Hey, we're crushing it all day long. You know, everything's going great, but like, no, I have challenges and challenges with, you know, sales, product, executives, culture, recruiting, everything. And you want people that are you going to be able to have constructive thought, you know, uh, brainstorming type conversations versus people that are, you know, going to react in unconstructive ways. And there's a lot of investors out there that are not constructive and do get emotional and do get hot-headed. And, you know, thankfully, I, I've been, I think, blessed with a great board that, you know, is a great partner. For us, uh, but you know, a lot of my time has had been spent kind of curating that board and spending time with people ahead of time. Now, obviously, when it comes to investors and when it comes to uh, employees as well, as well as customers, it's all about vision too, no? Uh, so imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Asaf, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Big Panda is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah. Well, our mission is to empower the teams that keep digital services running. So what does that mean? You know, our customers are some of the largest banks and retailers and airlines and stock exchanges in the world. They keep the digital world running. And, you know, behind all of those digital services is digital infrastructure, clouds, servers, uh, storage networks, you know, all this digital infrastructure that's got to keep running in order to keep digital services running. So this video conference that we're having right now, underpinning that is a lot of people who work really, really hard to make sure all that infrastructure runs like it should. Uh, and they just can't keep up with the scale of data that's happening. You know, as enterprises are moving to the cloud, there's a lot more moving parts, moving a lot faster, creating a lot more machine data. So our vision is how do we create a future where we empower those teams to fully automate the work in keeping those digital services running? You know, how do we use AI to take all that data, turn it into insight about what's happening in your environment, and then turn it into automation? So human beings have way more time. Developers can have way more time to build innovation versus putting out fires. Uh, so, you know, if I wake up and our vision fully is fully realized, you know, we've really empowered all these teams to focus on innovation. And while we fully automate the work of keeping all that digital infrastructure running. Uh, sounds beautiful. Eh? So uh, really amazing. Now, now we're talking about the future here. I want to talk about the past, but um being able to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. So let's say, you know, I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time, you know, perhaps back to 2012, you know, that moment where you were thinking about, hey, why not me? Why not giving the notice here and, and going at it? And let's say you were able to grab that younger Asaf, that moment that you were leaving, you know, the office of Sequoia for the last time as an employee there and you're able to stop that younger sub and to have a sit down. And you're able to give that younger sub one piece of advice before launching a business or before launching Big Panda. What would that be and why, given what you know now? 
piece of advice would be really, really thoughtful about the leaders that you hire. You know, for me, some of my early mistakes were, you know, we were very blessed with some really good founding engineers that did amazing work. And, um, but I was a first-time entrepreneur, and as I moved to the United States and had it to recruit you know, people that I had less uh, experience with in other domains around sales and marketing and customer success, you know, I recruited sometimes the right people, but sometimes the wrong people. And, and I didn't have an appreciation for how that can really set you back. How can that affect your custody, your culture, if you're recruiting executives that don't really share your values and your culture and, you know, what that does to your culture? Um, you know, today, when I recruit executives, I do it all myself. I spend a ton of time getting to know these people, making sure that they are good cultural fit, that they're great leaders. Uh, because the cost of a bad executive hire is so incredibly expensive. And so to my early self, I'd say, don't be so cavalier about the executives you hire, especially at the beginning. It's an incredibly faithful set of decisions. Very profound. I guess, as you were saying, to make sure that it's a cultural fit, you know, just to double click on that, what is the number one must have that you typically see in that journey of really understanding whether one person is going to be or not a good cultural fit with Big Panda? It's not an easy answer, and I don't think that there's one thing. You know, and it also depends on whether you're recruiting an executive or whether you're recruiting an individual. You know, for me, it starts with number one thing is they've got to be a fit for our values. Our values around hunger, uh, transparency, uh, a sense of one team, sense of collective responsibility. You know, not someone who's going to say, "Hey, I don't care if the rest of the company is succeeding, so long as my department really succeeds." Uh, and you know, it's got to be a, fa a values fit uh, for executives. The one big thing I say, and, and this is still true today, is can this person think in terms of first team? You know, first team, the concept of first team is, hey, executives have to have, you know, loyalty and collective responsibility to each other and the success of the company. So if you're a chief revenue officer, your primary Loyalty needs to be to your other executives, your CMO, your VP product, your head of R&D, before it is to your group of sellers. And the CMO and the R&D needs to be the exact same way, because otherwise you risk getting silos. And that's when you start getting tribalism, where sales is saying, hey, marketing's not doing their job or I'm not succeeding because R&D sucks and their velocity sucks and all those sorts of things. Versus when you have a, a set of first team executives who are really dedicated to each other's success, trust each other enough to go direct to each other around issues and challenges, uh, 
That's how you build a successful company. Very and there's cool. not every exec can think like that. There's a lot of execs who are saying, hey, no, I'm a sales guy or I'm a marketing guy and I'm going to be really entrenched into my silo and, you know, get out of my way. And, you know, that is not a fit for our culture. So, that, you know, that's the one biggest thing I look for in executives. I love it. So, Asaf, for the people that are listening, that are super inspired, and I would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so, Asaf? Find me on LinkedIn and reach out. Uh, find me on our website and just reach out. Is he enough? Well, hey, Asaf, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.